Voice of Fintech. Welcome to Voice of Fintech, a podcast mapping out the Swiss and global fintech scene, connecting fintech enthusiasts with startups, incubators, accelerators, business angels and VCs, and incumbents interested in partnerships. Voice of Fintech will help you navigate the fintech ecosystem. Here you can listen to the startup founder stories, what investors and incumbents are looking for when dealing with startups, and find out more about resources provided by incubators and accelerators. My name is Rudy Fallad and I'll be hosting this podcast. Hello and welcome to Voice of Fintech. Today we're going to travel to New York, New York State to be clear, right? And we're going to talk about a platform business, a platform business that our friend here Nelson built. And we're going to talk about private credit and why do you need a platform for this? Why is it better than any other solution that we heard about? How is he thinking about growth in private credit? Because that's also been a big theme in finance last couple of years. And how did he get going? Because many people these days want to build a platform business. In that business, the winner takes all. So how do you become a winner like Nelson, right? So all of these things we'll find out today. So Nelson, how are you today? I'm good. Thanks so much for having me. And uh, yeah, winner takes all. You spoke very kindly of me for that. We're, we're trying to win. Let's put it that way. <laughs> all right. Great stuff. Can you tell us about yourself and your team? How, how did you get here? Yeah, absolutely. So this company was founded in 2018 with the intent of building a better alternative investment platform, specifically for private credit, which we can talk about in a little bit. We've done about a billion and a half worth of volume so far in the company's life. And it's been a great run since then. We've learned a lot about ourselves, learned a lot about the market. And we realized that there is a huge technology opportunity here, in addition to the investment platform, to be able to make this all something that's transformational for the industry. What about your team? Because I just want to be clear whether you are the sole founder or you have co-founders. How do you th think about that? Yeah, sole founder, but an incredibly talented management team that has really come together from decades of experience working in traditional finance at market data companies. All of that experience is integral to building what we do today because it is so nuanced. It is so specific. And to your question earlier, it is actually really difficult as well uh, to be successful in a space like this. Exactly. That's why some people are especially hard on sole founders, right? So why have you decided to start your own company by yourself? Yeah, it's been something that I've always been looking to do. This is actually not my first company. I think uh, the first company is always probably the one you learn the most out of. And so uh, I actually had left traditional finance back in 2012, 2013-ish. I spent about two and a half years at Merrill Lynch, Bank of America, and BlackRock. Uh, to really do my own thing. So the goal was to start something myself thinking, how hard could it possibly be? I realized very quickly it was actually very hard. And the first company that really got off the ground and was at least somewhat successful was a strategy consulting firm that helped other founders build their companies from the ground up. So we did everything from products to marketing to branding to engineering, and it did pretty well. We had a couple of clients that became unicorns, all like very good to be a part of an experience along the way. And I gave them a lot of advice as well to those founders on what to do and how to navigate the venture market, if you will, and the growth of the company. So fast forward a couple years, doing that for five or six years, realized that the exciting part was to build a venture backed company. And we had a lot of fintech clients, given my finance background. 
And so we looked at the finance landscape at that point in time in 2017, 2018, and recognized there was a great opportunity to build a better alternative investment platform than what was out there. And that really drove a lot of the initial decisions that we made around the product, the feature set, the asset class, things like that. And that's how we got to where we are today. I see. All right. So your company is called Percent, right? So what is Percent and what is the problem or the opportunity that you want to explore? For sure. So we focus on private credit specifically for everyone's benefit. Private credit is an asset class that has really come into vogue the last, I would say, two, three years, roughly, give or take. But it's been around for decades, but it really almost took off, if you will, because of the global financial crisis. So private credit, you could just think of it as non-bank lending, essentially. And pre-financial crisis, banks did a lot of lending to consumers and small businesses. And then after the crisis, regulators stepped in and said, you really shouldn't be doing that anymore. We're going to make it very expensive for you to do that. So the demand for loans from SMBs and consumers didn't change, but someone had to fill that gap, given that the banks have left it. And that's really where private credit came into play. So all these non-bank lenders came out and were started to be able to provide financing and loans to these SMBs and consumers. But because they're not a bank, they don't have a balance sheet. They have to raise money from somewhere else. And that's really where the ecosystem and the market for private credit really took off. So this is essentially providing financing and working capital solutions to these types of non-bank lenders to be able to be successful and, and operate their businesses. Now, for us in particular, that means that we are supporting fintech lenders, we're supporting venture-backed companies on the small side. And hopefully when all is said and done, we can do larger companies as well as we go more and more into the institutional markets with the software that we built in addition to that alternative investment platform. So you provide software solution to those non-bank lenders or are you non-bank platform lender yourself? That's a great distinction. Uh, we have the unique position of operating a three-sided market, which I'm sure you can appreciate is probably one of the most difficult to do. Uh, you have the borrowers who need debt capital. These are going to be your non-bank lenders. You have the investors and lenders who want to put money to work to earn yield and earn interest. And then you have underwriters sitting in the middle who are responsible for structuring these transactions. Because, for example, let's say there's a buy now, pay later firm that has hundreds of thousands of consumer loans. There is not a situation where a single investor will invest in 10 of those loans or five of those loans or whatever. You actually need to securitize that into putting it, those baskets of hundreds of thousands of loans into an investable product. And that's where the underwriter comes in. So for the first four years of the company's life, we were the underwriter. Knowing that a three-sided market is extremely difficult to build on day one, we took down one of the sides ourselves just to learn how to do these transactions at scale. 400 transactions later, over a billion dollars of volume later, we felt we had learned enough. We had built enough software. And so last year, 2023, we actually ended up opening up the platform to other third-party underwriters, your credit funds, your placement agents, your boutique advisory firms, and from there, we saw the technology really shine. And so today, we do have a three-sided marketplace that operates with our help using software and using actual people on the team to support them. But it is extremely efficient today, more so than it's ever been. And it bodes well for what we have coming next, becoming that pure play infrastructure solution. But you talked about the origins of it, why private credit has been booming, etc. How does the credit risk management work in this world? It's interesting. Private markets inherently have more risk than public markets. That's just full stop what it should be, right? And that's always going to be the case. 
The difference is public markets comes with a lot of transparency. There's a lot of efficiency. There's a lot of standardization around that, right? So for example, for a public market fixed income instrument, there is market standard deal structures. It's why you can provide a rating on one of these instruments very quickly and very easily. It's why they can raise like a billion dollars very quickly, which is great. There's also data standardization because the companies themselves are actually public, which means they have audited financials, very easy to compare companies across one another and their performance. And then the participants are pretty well known. You have these big public companies who need to raise debt capital. You have the investment banks who structure it. And you have the asset managers, uh, pension funds, et cetera, who invested it. So all pretty well known. On the private credit side, there is no market standardization. Every single deal is structured differently, which makes it very complex to actually underwrite. Uh, you have no data standardization because these companies aren't public, so they don't have audited financials. And there's deal sizes that range from really small, like fifty dollars to $100,000, to really large, to hundred to $500 million. And that makes for a different risk profile as well. So the way we think about it is that from a credit risk standpoint, the earlier stage they are, the smaller they are, likelihood is it probably comes with higher risk. And the later stage they are, the larger they are, it comes with lower risk. But we've created a lot of market standardization around the deal structure, a lot of data standardization around the reporting, and all the right participants we bring to the table to make that significantly better, more transparent, more efficient, and more standardized than it's ever been before. And that will help with, in general, due diligencing and underwriting a deal. All right. So... Basically, you're working on providing more transparency, more clarity about private credit. So that's great. Now, just want to ask you, the because I have a one platform in mind from Europe where the way they deal with the risk is that they just chop it and slice it into such small pieces <laughs> using technology, right? So sure. there may be a bigger loan at the end, but you as a retail investor of uh, is exposed to $100 from one person or even less, like 10. We're talking about micro exposure and that's the system, right? So you diversify so much that it should work even if you're lending somebody to buy a washing machine in a faraway country. Yeah, that's, that's not- it's an interesting way to do it and put it. I would say for us, we try and provide investment products uh, to meet the investors where they are, right? So for the smaller retail investor, they generally prefer to invest in direct deals. They almost like to construct their own portfolio based on whatever theses they may have. They may say, you know what? I don't like consumer loans right now because it feels a little bit risky. So I'm going to do more on the Mm -hmm. SMB side. So I only want SMB deals. We give them that opportunity to diversify as they see fit. For more institutional investors like the family offices of the world, the investment advisors of the world, They really don't want to be looking at every single transaction, diligencing each one every time, but they tend to have a thesis, an investment mandate, things that they're allowed to invest in. And so for those types of investors, we have the ability to create customized products for them because of that market standard deal structures that we've created, where they can literally tell us, hey, I want US only deals that have senior positions that are only asset backed, that have trailing default rates that are under 10% for the last 12 months that have a loss coverage above 2x, whatever that criteria may be, they can tell us, we create the product for them, set it and forget it. And then every deal that meets that criteria goes into that investment product, which is great for them. That's the type of product that they can invest in very easily. And then for the true institutional investor, like a credit fund, they tend to actually need some sort of warehouse or facility to invest through and via. And that's why we have credit facilities for those guys as well. So it really is creating products to meet investors 
where they are best suited for and what they're interested in is how we do it. But we do try and make it as flexible, dynamic, and diversified as possible because at the end of the day, these are private credit instruments. These come with private credit type risk, right? And so diversification is still the best choice for all of these investors. All right, sounds great. So what is your unique advantage if you compare yourself to competition? You said maybe we are different than banks because banks needed to raise more equity. Their ROE was under pressure. So they shy away from whatever smells like a bit of risk, even though there is need for this. And there is a way to provide loans to people who are also a bit riskier, smaller companies, etc. Right. So if you compare yourself to not probably the banks, but then other platforms like yourself, what is your unique selling advantage? For sure. In the private credit space, similar to most other markets, there is the large players. And that's going to be your Apollo, Aries, Blackstone, KKRs of the world, which is fine. They will continue to be very successful in this space. You have the middle market groups, whether it's things like Adelaya or Hudson Cove or any of those types of players, which is less well known, but still doing fairly large deals in the grand scheme of things. And they've gotten larger and larger, so they're doing bigger and bigger deals. Our advantage for the space that we play in is that we go lower middle market, right below those players where there is significantly less competition in general across the board for the borrowers who are raising this type of money and for the investors who are looking for this type of return. So that in of itself means that we never really run up against the more conventional players in private credit, which is great. For the other alternative investment platforms in the market, it's pretty much certain that we are going to run across them, but not all of them are actually in private credit. There's a lot of platforms that are asset class specific. So they may offer things like real estate or startup equity or uh, different types of funds. And that's fine, right? I believe that you should actually have diversified exposure across all those different asset classes. That would be great in terms of just constructing a portfolio for you. But don't forget about private credit. And so we're very well known specifically for private credit. And that's where people come to us for knowing that's what they're going to get. When it comes to private credit specifically and other platforms that offer it, I'd like to think that given the ability and the diversification of types of products that we offer, that gives us a leg up, right? So we cover many geographies. It's not just U.S. borrowers, so people can get international exposure. We offer a wide range of asset classes within private credit, both from the asset class side specifically around asset-backed deals, which are portfolios of loans, and corporate debt deals, which is a loan to a single borrower. And within the asset classes specifically, we do things like small business lending, consumer loans, factor receivables, litigation finance, equipment leasing, the list goes on. So the ability to offer all of that gives investors, again, more optionality. And then on top of that, we also have these customizable products that just really is never before seen in the market. That is something that it plays to our advantage, both for the retail investor who can get instant diversification if they invest in these products, or with a family office or institutional investor who wants to construct something themselves with our help, you just really don't get that elsewhere. And so the the outcome of all this is really a higher weighted average return for lower fees on the management side, lower carry. And that's something that we really stand out with against other funds and other platforms that are out there. Which leads me to another question, a practical one, right? So for a retail investor, what's the minimum size of the ticket that you're looking for? Yeah, so there's a legal regulation around this where in many different deals that we offer, if they're too long duration, so above nine months, we can only have 99 investors in that specific deal. So that inherently limits how many investors can go into there and also the minimum ticket size they can invest in. Having said that, 
in the US for deals that are below nine months, you can actually have as many investors as you want. And so in that instance, we have so many investments that we go out with that are only $500. And the reality is, even though all of our investors have to be accredited, the $500 minimum makes it very approachable. They can just sign up very quickly, verify their identity, get accredited, and they're ready to invest. And we have so many investors that actually almost like try before you buy, right? They put in that $500 and then it comes out a month later, two months later with interest. And then they can see, okay, this works. Let me put more money to work or let me invest in that diversified product. And so that's a great way to get adoption and educate investors on how private credit works without putting a lot at stake and without putting a lot at risk. So the minimum tickets range from $500 all the way up to, I think we've done like $50,000 before, something like that. But again, that's a legal limitation, not a percent uh, implemented limitation. And do they need to be qualified investors or not? So in the US, it would be considered a credit investor, actually, which means yeah, that they have to I'm, have... That's what yeah, I mean. Yeah, yeah. We also do have qualified purchasers, which has the $5 million net worth minimum. And we also have QIBs on the platform as well, which is, I think, $100 million, something like that, which is even way, way higher. But yes, accredited is the limit, limit that is the threshold they have to clear at the very least. Okay, I got that. All right. And then when you talk about private credit, and you mentioned interest... Do all of your instruments pay interest or sometimes it's like a zero coupon bond or not? I think if we had a zero coupon bond, I don't think we'd get much demand at all from investors given what they're looking to get. So yes, every single one of the deals does pay interest. The structure itself varies. Usually it's almost a interest only period that happens for call it nine months, 10 months, a year, two years or whatever. And then it could amortize down from there. But that's usually the normal path, right? So interest only and then amortization where both principal and interest get paid back over a period of time. Okay. All right, cool. So let's turn the spotlight over to you again. How do you make money though? We have the benefit of being able to have a three-sided market in this instance, which we generally quite appreciate as a result, because the fee structure coming out of all that is one where no one participant in the market feels like they're getting taken advantage of. So we do charge the borrower. Uh, that's going to be a, a monthly fee based upon how much usage they have of the platform, as well as some sort of syndication fee, depending on the size of the deal that they marketed to our investor base. Those are for deals that we underwrite. Right. So we still continue to be that underwriter in these transactions on a periodic basis for the deals that we don't underwrite, where there's a third party underwriter, whether that may be a credit fund, a placement agent, a boutique advisory firm. We charge something similar. Right. So sometimes there's a platform fee. There is usually a syndication fee for deals they're bringing out to market and similar to just how you would charge in a traditional investment banking type model for capital raised. And then for investors, they get charged a uh, percentage of the APY, which is about 10%. So our weighted average APY right now on the platform is roughly, I would say, 17 18%, give or take, if you invested in every single deal. So that means our take rate from that will be 17 to 1.8% on an annual basis, effectively. And then if they invest in the managed product, that's the one where you can say, I want to set my criteria, and these are the specific things that I want in my basket of things I can invest into, that type of product is a managed product, right? So we charge a 1% management fee on top of that. So these are industry, I think, leading in terms of pricing and how much it costs. I would say generally our management fee is about on par, but the carried interest is significantly lower than what you'd see with like an Aries or a Blackstone or anything like that, which puts us in a very competitive position. All right. But how can you achieve this? Sorry to be a bit fastidious here, but either you are less hungry than other people or you don't want to drive a Ferrari by the age of X. 
uh, or you are more efficient. And uh, that comes to that point about technology, right? And maybe there is an angle there. So which one is it? That is the angle. And that's the beauty of it. When we first did our deals on the platform in 2019, we were building or we were when we first did our deals in 2019, there was no tech on the back end, right? We were actually managing all of the order books for investors that put interest in via Google Sheets. We were sending out these compliance forms via Typeform. We were basically monitoring the performance using Excel. It was something else, I would say. Let's put it that way. And over the course of those four years, doing 400 plus deals, every single sprint that we launched a new feature for was designed to almost take ourselves out of the equation and reduce a lot of these manual things into something that is all done via platform. Four years later, we now have something to show for it, right? We have a portal for borrowers to manage their entire debt capital markets lifecycle. We have a portal for borrowers to manage their transaction process from start to finish. And we have one for investors to diligence and manage their portfolio of investments. They all work together seamlessly to get transactions done. And that means that for us as a company, our gross margins are exorbitantly high, but they weren't always that way. When we were running all the deals ourselves as an underwriter, we had very poor gross margins, as I'm sure you can imagine. And now our gross margins are similar to more of a SaaS company, which is unheard of for any sort of marketplace or investment platform type business. And that's all thanks to technology, which is why we can get away with the type of fee structure that we have. As much as I'd like to drive a Ferrari by the time I'm X age, we'll get there through different means. Let's put it that way. Okay, understood. And you're based in New York. Where where else is your team? Because you talked about your customers that prefer to invest in deals close to them. So that may also mean that you need to do some due diligence, even though you leverage technology locally. So I would imagine that you are quite a distributed team, but tell us how it works. Yeah, the bulk of the core team is in New York City. And so we have engineers here. We have our commercial team here. We have the corporate operations team here, marketing team. Those are all here. The teams that we have distributed are generally on the engineering side, which makes sense. We have offshore teams. We have some of them around the United States, all around. So that's the norm these days, I think, for most startups, which is fine. When it comes to being able to bring deals internationally, the good news is most of them come from these third-party underwriters, right? So we are trusting in many ways their diligence as long as they adhere to our tighter structures and more rigorous structures that they probably wouldn't normally do themselves. So that in of itself gives us confidence, which is great, but they're the ones that are responsible for at least doing on-site diligence, visiting the client, who's the borrower, things like that. And so we can almost outsource a lot of that because of the fact that we have these third-party underwriters that are doing their job and doing our job that we normally historically have had to do before. When yes, we did actually have to go on-site and do diligence on these borrowers in Colombia, in Mexico, and things like that. I see. All right. Understood. Now, you talked a little bit about your beginnings, right? How you started with just third-party tools, manual processes, things like this. But let's talk a little bit about how you started your business and turning into a business. In in other words, how did you get your first 100 customers? You said it's a three-way or a three-way based platform. So how did you get the first 100 on each side and who did you prioritize? Yeah, that's the interesting thing. I would say it's almost like a stepladder. So just remember in the three-sided market that we operate in, we took down a side ourselves at the very least to make our life easier. So we were underwriting, which means that we had to find borrowers. We had to find investors. On the borrower side, the usual case is that if you have capital, then they will come, right? That's pretty well understood. On the investor side, it's if you have interesting opportunities, then I will put money to work. 
So it was a constant tug of war between having not enough borrowers and too much money, and then not enough money and too many borrowers. And that's how you grow. That's pretty, pretty standard. In terms of acquisition on both sides, it was unique for each of them. So for the borrowers, because we were underwriting deals, we actually had to go out and you know pound the pavement and find these borrowers. They were doing, they were going to be at conferences. They were going to be from our network. We pulled every string we had. The amount of speed dating we've done at conferences is unreal. And it actually is very efficient. If they give you like five minutes to meet with somebody, it's very, very transactional, but you get where you need to go very quickly. So we got a lot of our borrowers that way. And like I mentioned, we do have a presence in Latin America and all around the world. But in Latin America in particular, there's not a ton of fintech lenders that are out there. They all know each other. So oftentimes when we actually got a client in one country, we end up getting a lot of other clients in that country as well because nobody wants to be left out in the cold, which is great. Helps us get them and acquire borrowers much easier. On the investor side, we did focus predominantly on accredited investors at the outset, and that's going to be the usual channels. You have paid acquisition strategies around Google, Meta, things like that, those types of growth hacky ways to get investors on board. And then the usual sponsorships of podcasts, newsletters, and whatnot, uh, because that's meeting them where they are in terms of what they listen to and what they like. And that's helped get to where we are. Now, fast forward to recently when we opened up the platform for all three sides, Getting underwriters was actually significantly easier because we had built up a reputation for ourselves over the last four years. Everyone kind of knew who we were, and the value prop of being able to offer something for them they couldn't really get anywhere else made it a pretty easy sell. So we've had underwriters join every single month, which is fantastic. And a lot of these guys are bringing one deal, two deals a month, which is helping us accelerate our growth dramatically from here, which has been great to see. I see. All right. So sounds great. So be, everyone listen up. It's not easy to take the platform and build it into a real business, right? And that means having customers or in this case, three types of partners to, to work with. So you mentioned how you got today to where you are today. So tell us a little bit where you are on your journey versus you, where you want to be. So in other words, are you going to hire more people? Are you raising money? Uh, what are your plans going forward in, in the near future? For sure. I think we need to really figure out how far the technology can take us. We've actually been a marketplace for the first couple of years of the company's life and gotten more and more efficient along the way through technology. So let's push the limits of what we can accomplish using this technology to set it as a benchmark for everyone else to follow and look at. So hiring, not really that much right now, to be perfectly frank. We've been able to increase our revenue per employee to be almost top decile as a result of the tech that we have. We've been able to increase our gross margins to be more like a software company. Those are all really very telling for what we've built and where we can go from here. When it comes to aspirations of the company, this is a 10-year journey. I think most startups in general are 10-year journeys. And if you try and do something or believe less than that, I would say you're being a little bit too optimistic in the grand scheme of things. So we're a little bit over halfway through, right? That's fine. And I think the back half is going to be way more exciting than the front half because all the foundational work that was put into it, building that software suite, architecting all of this out, getting all these clients on board to the point where, yeah, we do have a marketplace. It is almost like a paradigm for how a efficient marketplace and platform can run. But the future of this business isn't software at the end of the day. It's our ability to go up market and provide and offer what we do today to the lower middle market to the later segment or larger segment of the market from here. That's going to be what's really powerful. That is going to be what transforms the industry. And that's what keeps me the most excited. It's about where we go next, given everything we've done for ourselves these first couple of years of the company's life. 
Wonderful. So that sounds great. So bef- before I let you go, I just have two easy questions for you. One is, do you have a favorite business book that you would recommend or some other resource from which you're learning about what you're doing at work? Yeah, actually, a recent book that I picked up was, I believe, called The Outsiders, if I'm not mistaken. And it talks about a lot of the CEOs that do things a little bit differently. So obviously, tech founders, the ones that you all hear about, whether it's Zuckerberg or Brian Chesky or anything like that, like they're really public, really front-facing, client-facing, and, and it's all great. Everyone knows who they are. But there's a lot of CEOs behind the scenes that build things the old-fashioned way, which is they care about strategic acquisitions, managing cash, like being cash flow positive. These are all things that have come back into vogue in the recent venture equity cycle that I think honestly builds healthier businesses at the end of the day. So taking a lot of experiences and learnings from that book has been pretty remarkable in shaping how I think percent can go in the future, because this is an unsexy business. I'll be the first to admit that. But it is one where I believe unsexy businesses have longevity and they're ones that can really affect transformational change. And it comes from doing all the little things right and not necessarily always being so public facing. Everybody knows who you are. It's all the details of how you manage that behind the scenes that makes all the difference. Absolutely. So I, I will put a link to uh, the Outsiders book in the show notes. And uh, yeah, on sexy business, that's where the money is typically, right? Not where you hear about it all day long, every day. So one last thing is where can interested parties reach you and who would you like to hear from most? Yeah, absolutely. I would say we're pretty easy to find. We are called Percent. So our website is just percent.com. For anybody who's interested in learning more about private credit, looking for private credit opportunities to invest into arguably one of the most exciting segments of the private credit market. We're here for you. Happy to chat with you. For anybody who wants to learn more about me, talk to me. I actually have my own website. If anyone wants to take a look, it actually is more about founders building in public. So it's just nelsonchu.co, so .co. You can actually see a lot of the weekly emails that I put out from the team. So you can see how we've evolved over time as a company as well. And then if you want to talk to me, I'm pretty easy as well. It's just nelson.chu at percent.com. Always happy to talk to investors who are interested in private credit or other founders who are looking for advice and guidance. I'm always happy to speak with them and share my perspectives as well. Fantastic. So good luck to you, Nelson, and to Percent. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Voice of Fintech podcast. If you haven't already, check out also voiceoffintech.com, where you will find all the episodes and additional resources related to the podcast. You can also subscribe to Voice of Fintech on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or any other podcast app that you like. If you have any suggestions on the topics or guests, or how to make this podcast better for you, please email us at info at Happy to hear from you. Thank you.